65% and bring sure that are racially uh, diverse members. And we really sort of uh, established three foundational pillars for the most part, clinical excellence, research and development, and the next generation. Um, and the and what's great about CBC is senior leadership through the big about innovation, which is sort of allowed us to do a lot of things within the health center. And so uh, I'm just going to mention a couple uh, that sort of related to this talk. One is the populations, which I'm the medical director of, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about what that center is. Um, and then the Weizmann Institute that was developed uh, a few years back, and that's sort of like the research arm of the federal department of CBC. That's what Project Echo Field is. Consultation and a lot of the issues that comes out of that. There's a lot of in-play with that. So these are just to show you pictures buildings across uh, across the, uh, the the stage. So myself and my administrative counterpart, uh, we were sort of running a number of different programs at CDC. So we were running the HIV program, and we started the hepatitis C program, and we started the Murphy program. Homeless uh, shelter program, and we look at establishing LGBT program, and we were like, thank God, we're getting schizophrenic. It's just too many things. And we thought we needed to sort of bring it in under one sort of umbrella, one, one center. So, in some ways, we sort of snuck this in because we sort of asked in the leadership if we could call ourselves a center for population, and they said no. But we sort of started doing it anyway, and more or less, it started becoming center for populations, and, and now we would establish as such. And the idea with the Center for Key Populations Group is that we want to ensure that key populations in the communities we serve really have a central cohesive focus. Um, and, and that the idea that if they're coming to our health center, no matter who they are or, or, or what they have, that they're going to be treated as a primary care patient, as a primary care patient. Right? So the idea is that they're going to be fully integrated, that they would have the same uh, resources available to them, the same services that anybody else has. So the idea is that. It doesn't matter, HIV patient, FC patient, a drug user, a diabetic patient, you're the same type of patient when you come to CHC and you have all the services available to you at every health center. Um, and how did we come up with key populations? You know, we played around with special populations and vulnerable populations. There's always these, I don't know, there's always this theme of those words. And so we looked at the World Health Organization to find five key groups that work at the highest uh, risk for HIV, um, and we thought, why not know our population anyway? And so those were men of sex with men, transgender uh, women, specifically people in jet drugs, the incarcerated, what we'll call them recently incarcerated, institutions, students, so that they get discharged, and sex workers. And so within our center, we sort of basically provide HIV services, hepatitis C services, SDI uh, services, Medication-assisted treatment, specifically buprenorphine, uh, but also substance abuse <coughs> overall, uh, as well as the homeless care services, and then our newly launched LGBT and trans health uh, across the board, along with a uh, number of other things. So just to show you what our organization, so the center sort of looks like, so we report to senior leadership, uh, and we've got our own team, and within that, we've got a number of different programs that are funded, sort of different. so we've got the Wherever You Are, our Healthcare for the Homeless program, it's funded by the Fed 330. We've got our HIV program, which is Part C. We've got Part A and Part B as well, mainly in, in, in middle towns, so not everywhere, but in middle town. Collaborate on most of the Part A, Part C's, and our other centers. Um, we've got a Hep C program. We've got uh, a substance use program that got funded uh, through sort of grants that really went 
we should have been one or two health centers, and then through SAMHSA funding and HRSA funding, we were able to expand it across the board. Oh, thank you. Were you not hearing me very well? Oh, oh that's great. Oh, for the recording. Excellent. Um, and then we started the LGBT program as well. And then within that, like within all these programs, as you can sort of see there below, we really use Project ECHO to ensure that clinical sort of excellence is, is, is sort of maintained across our health centers, wherever people go. We um, have established uh, what I think a pretty robust QI program. That actually came out of Dartmouth. A lot of our people came to Dartmouth to get trained in the clinical microsystems. I'm not sure whether you guys are familiar with that or not, but it's really done wonders for our QI program within our HIV program, uh, although now within our Center for Depopulations program. We do have a relatively good consumer advisory board uh, through the Ryan White program, and then uh, CHC also has established the first NP residency program. And so uh, we, we have a lot of teaching through there, through Cunipac University that a number of us has uh, um, uh, uh, sort of, like I'm, I'm a mentor there, and so we see the medical students that come through with us. Uh, uh, we sort of collaborate with a lot of sort of Yale nursing. And so a lot of teaching actually happens. And, uh, and this year I'm sort of excited to say that we've added on a second year to the NP residency program for anybody who's interested to do a second year fellowship with the Center for Key Populations. So the idea is we just need to keep training more and more primary care providers to be comfortable with treating all these different um, uh, sort of comorbid uh, uh, issues that a lot of our population sort of uh, deal with. And then we, we're trying to do a lot of research, but as you can imagine, a lot of different hats that, uh, that we're doing. So what is the model of care? I just wanted to go through that with you a little bit to sort of understand what we have at CHC and why it's so important that the Center for Key Populations really is not a standalone center. It's like, I know we say center, we think, oh, there's like a brick and mortar site and our patients are going to go to that center to get their care. That's not the model at all. Um, it, it's really a handful of group of people led by myself and, uh, and a small group of people that's funded through our Ryan White grant. And we sort of serve as... The, uh, the teachers, trainers, um, uh, and, and consultants for the rest of the health centers, for all of the providers to be able to reach out to us and uh, to sort of get their an uh, questions answered through Project ECHO, through e-consultation, e and through sort of other means that way. So, so that means that every health center, we basically have comprehensive primary uh, medical, dental, and behavioral health. Um, at each of these health centers. We have integrated specialty care, most of it under the Center for Key Populations, like HIV, hepatitis C, substance abuse, but we also have uh, pain and any consultation and some other uh, uh, issues, but other conditions like complex care for, for nursing. And so we've integrated a lot of, uh, and continue to grow that way. We've got the wherever you are, the healthcare for the homeless. We've got a lot of ancillary services that our patients can access to, from nutrition to podiatry to chiropractic care to diabetic educator. Um, and all our patients have access to the expanded hours, to 24-7 coverage at Saturdays. And we've recently established a quick care clinic. So that way people can come in and see uh, a provider, not necessarily your own provider, but at least uh, a, a provider, if they have a quick question, they can come in for the same day. Um, 
we are team-based approach, right? So we sit in pods, everybody sits in pods, and the teams uh, are based uh, basically medical provider, RN, medical assistant, and we've embedded behavioral health in that too. Um, and then in addition, our team particularly has an HIV case manager, we have an outreach worker, and we've just recently uh, got a prep navigator, and I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit uh, later on. And we're really big on data-driven. So it's really been key that we have somehow usurped you know, um, a, a data person and a, a business intelligence person as part of our team. They love working with us, and so we try to keep it fun for them. So that way they keep wanting to do the work for us. Um, uh, and But we, we've really established a lot of clinical dashboards uh, and then the clinical microsystem we talked about. And I'll, I will talk a little bit more detail later on. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. You know, one of the main reasons I feel, I'm, I'm, I'm family medicine, so I'm not ID, I'm, I'm primary care, so my approach has always been from primary care perspective. I'm also an HIV specialist, and I've been doing HIV almost sort of from the beginning. Uh, and, and then when I got to the U.S., I realized that all my patients were either using drugs, not on their HIV meds, they've got hep C co-infection, nobody was treating them. And I was like, what's going on here? So, so when I took over the medical sort of the program, I sort of went to senior leadership and said, all right, this is what I want. I want to sort of integrate hep C and buprenorphine, and I want to make this into a program. And they're like, sure, for the same amount of money, go ahead and do it. And I said, all right, so that's what I'm going to do. And so, and so over the years, I've been able to sort of get to the Center for Key Population with my administrative counterpart and with a lot of great people who are interested in this. But the main reason is, I mean, look at our statistics, right? So our, in terms of our HIV, if we look at the cascade, the treatment cascade, although this is much better than it's been in the past, but we're still looking at only 30% of uh, people who are HIV infected who are actually undetectable. And, and, and that's a far cry from where we should be. Now, most randomized programs actually are much better than this, but overall, nationally, this is where we're at, at 30%. And that, that not only affects the individuals who've got HIV, but also with what more and more we know is treatment as prevention, right? So we want to make sure that the transmission rates continue to sort of drop. And to do this, we've got to get everybody who's HIV on treatment and undetectable. Similarly, if you look at the Hep C treatment cascade, not so great. Now, this is from 2013, 14, I think, data. So I'm hoping this is before the direct acting antivirals have sort of come about and taken off, uh, although there's still barriers to that. But we're looking at maybe 9% SVR rates, right? So sustained virologic response cure rates for the most part for our hep C uh, individuals. And I think we need to do a lot better than that uh, for the hep C. And I don't need to say too much about the opioid epidemic. I think we all know we're in a huge opioid epidemic. We've got millions of people who are, are, are using, millions of people who are got opioid use disorders, and, and many, many, many who are dying every day from, from overdoses. And, and we know, right, injection drug users, their lifespan is much shorter than the non-IDUs, and that's very true also of people who are HIV infected. And then when you look at the, the, the death rates and the national death rates, it's climbing, and it's climbing because it's being driven by the opioid crisis that we're in. So a number of different reasons as to why I feel like if we're going to get ahead of these epidemics, we cannot just simply rely on specialty care, going to specialty. You've got to start integrating this as part of primary care. We need both. We need to sort of be able to put all our resources together and sort of move forward by uh, um, attacking all of this from every, uh, every place that we can. 
So some of the key steps that we sort of learned in terms of integrating our program, I'm, I'm focusing on HIV, but it's really all our programs, our Center for Key Population programs, was one, grant support, right? If you've got the money, sometimes it helps to sort of start, start these programs. And so I think in many ways, because we have the Lion White funds, uh, we're somewhat protected from a lot of the things that other primary care providers, you know, from productivity and you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And so, so we are somewhat protected, not completely, but it sort of gives us a little bit more oomph to sort of say, hey, we've got a grant, we've got these obligations, and, and we've got extra resources now that we can actually support the rest of the health center in uh, HIV treatment and hep C treatment. We sort of integrated hep C along with that. And then we've got some, we had some grants from Samson Trista to sort of spread our, our what we're now calling medication-assisted treatment programs. Um, uh, and it's really truly come a long way. When it first started, it was a handful of people doing buprenorphine. Uh, behavioral health didn't even want to touch it. Like they're like, we don't do dual diagnosis, send everybody away. You know, if they're using, we can't see them. Um, to now, we've got like a robust behavioral health sort of program. We've got groups sort of involved for the most part. Anybody we're hiring understands they're going to do dual diagnosis as well. We've got more providers across the, the health centers that are actually prescribing, and we're supporting them through Echo and through other sort of means that way. That I think there's been a lot of movement on that, which has been great. And I'll show you some numbers later on. We had buy-in from senior leadership. Uh, everywhere from you know our CEO uh, down to the chief medical officers and the chief behavioral health officers, and uh, uh, we we made sure that we're included as part of leadership. I don't think they necessarily consider me senior leadership uh, or, or or my sort of administrative counterpart, but I think we're definitely part of the leadership circle. And so, and that's I think very important because that means there's always a face to our programs within senior leadership as they're making decisions, sort of moving forward. So we we attend their organizational meetings. We're part of the on-site medical director meetings and the site meetings, um, and uh, and we're also part of the Med MedQI as well as the performance improvement committees as well. So anything that we want to innovate and integrate. Uh, we run it through through the MedQI performance improvement committees, and so that way we're not sort of doing it on a little bit of program, but it's really across the board, um, um, agency wide. And IT, I cannot like if we don't present data to them, they're not going to listen to us. And so the fact that we're able to sort of get our data, I think, is extremely important. Um, and we started identifying clinical champions at each site, right? So we basically said, who is interested in what? Right? Some people were interested in buprenorphine, some people were interested in HIV, some in hep C. We sort of like rope them in a little bit, and then we sort of give them some incentives. We used to basically say, hey, we can sort of you know, block you off for this amount of time because you're doing this extra work, and we can, you can join ECHO, and that's you know, great professionally and personally. And so there's been a lot of ways that we can sort of incentivize a, a lot of our um, uh, primary care providers because at the end of the day, these are primary care providers who are being demanded to see tons of patients in a short period of time, and then to ask them to take on more things, even if they're interested, I think they just can get quite overwhelmed. And so we've been able to try to carve out and fight for their time, uh, uh, to be able, for them to remain our champions at each site. And so we definitely use ECHO quite a bit uh, in this, and we'll talk about that in, in a bit. So of course, same thing, teaching and educating uh, uh, across the agency. Um, establishing our clinical microsystems that I'll talk about in a bit, being part of the MedQI and the Performance Improvement Committee um, uh, as well. So let me talk a little bit about Project Echo. I think most people have heard about Project Echo. Show of hands, no? A few, all right. So Project Echo uh, came out of University of New Mexico by this brilliant man, Dr. Sanjeev Aurora. He's a gastroenterologist. 
And basically, in New Mexico, he realized that they had a huge hep C epidemic. And, and basically, it's very rural, and that many, many patients were just not getting treated. And so he basically established and said, all right, we're going to establish a video conferencing consultation with primary care rural docs and, 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 and primary care docs and prisons uh, across the state. They'll join on a weekly basis for two hours. They'll present their cases. They'll listen to some didactics. Uh, and the specialty sort of program out of the University of New Mexico, led by Dr. Aurora, would sort of basically guide the treatment that way. They published in the New England Journal of Medicine and showed that the SVR rate, this is in the era of interferon, right, well before direct acting antivirals, and they found that the SVR rates, the serologic response rates, were equivalent, if not a little bit better, actually, in the primary care sites, uh, uh, the distal sites, rather than uh, equivalent to the specialty sites, and same type of side effects and so on and so forth. So really, that established it, and now spread to many disciplines. When we first heard about this, that's when the light bulb went off in my mind, because basically we had a Ryan White Part C that really funded me, maybe another provider, if that, and just a small group of people that sort of supported me. And as it was, I was already in three different health centers. And I'm thinking, how do I get this to all health centers across, across the state? I want to make sure that any patient that comes to any of our health centers need to be able to have access to the same services. And so Project Echo, ding, we thought it was uh, 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 how we were going to do this. Um, so it really uh, creates an amazing learning community. And we sort of started it off, and we are actually, most of the Project Echoes that are out there are, are a lot of times are university-based and academic sort of center-based. Um, uh, at CHC, we're federally qualified health center, we're standalone, not-for-profit, not I think we're the only ones that have actually established a Project Echo out of that type of health center. And I think in many ways, there's an importance to that because it really sort of brings real-world primary care sort of approaches uh, uh, to, to, to this as we sort of spread it among other FQHCs. Um, and so we started out with HIV, Hep C. Basically, I went to senior leadership and said, we're ready to go. We've got the internal faculty. I can lead this. We've got the internal expertise. Let's just start it across, across our agency. Um, let's do this. So we, we did this. We started in January 2012. Um, and then soon after, a year later, we established the Project Echo Buprenorphine uh, that I sort of also lead. And then later on, we went on to Project Echo Pain. Uh, and then we established adolescent behavioral health and complex care for sort of nursing uh, and then LGBT health. That's sort of, we, it's no longer going on because we sort of basically worked with Fenway on that one. And it was for a year, but it was an amazing sort of program as well. So, and the difference with us is we're not just simply a regional hub and spoke, so we sort of decided that we'll just open it up across the nation. So anybody who wants to join us can join us. And so in so doing, we sort of so far have had around 178 practices join us uh, from uh, 23 states. Um, we've had over 500 echo sessions, nearly 2,000 case presentations have been done, and over 600 providers of medical and behavioral health that have gone through one or, 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 or more of our echoes um, from that front. So the elements of the echo session really, we're now moving from two hours, we're realizing that two hours is, is a lot for people to sit through and a lot to ask for, um, for I, I guess, our CFOs and our senior leadership to block providers off for a good two hours. So I think 90 minutes tends to, can get a little bit cramped, but I think it's 
plenty to sort of to do. And so we're moving down all our echoes to 90 minute sessions. Uh, it's around two to three cases per session with a didactic. It's around 15 to 20 minutes that's given. We tend to sort of give case, case presentations uh, um, a little bit more heft. So if we have a lot more case presentations, we may not necessarily do the didactic at that point. Uh, and basically the whole team can present. They present their case and then the, 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 the faculty uh, basically teach, do a lot of teaching around the cases and then sort of give, give our opinion in terms of what needs to be done and, uh, as part of the consultation. It, it's extremely easy. If you've got internet, you're able to sort of join. Basically, we use uh, the, uh, the platform Zoom, and it's really worked really, really well. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Zoom, but there's different ways that you can use, but our, the platform Zoom sort of works. We found, we, I think, started out with video and then moved on to Zoom. Uh, you can join on your iPhone, on your iPad, on your laptop, and the video conferencing. So wherever you are, we've had some people, you know, with you know, join on the train because they needed to sort of present a case and they're going off somewhere. I mean, it's we've had people outside. We were at a beach like in the summer day. They're outside, you know, sort of joining. Uh, and so it's really very easy uh, to do so. And like I said, what's amazing about this, it truly builds a community of practice. Like you feel you're not there out on your own. We, we, uh, I reached out to, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the big HIV outbreak that occurred in Indiana, in Austin, Indiana, so rural Indiana. So the family pra practice doc that was in the middle of it, Dr. Cook, was there, and I sort of reached out to the CDC and I said, listen, we've got this great program. If he's really sort of flailing out there with this, let me get in touch with him and see whether he wants to join us. I reached out to him, an amazing man, and he joined us. And literally his first thing was said, wow, I feel like I'm not out here by myself, that there's a community out there. Uh, we sort of see, you know, see each other every, every week, uh, uh, and it's, it was sort of amazing. We've got a, an amazing um, provider out of rural Maine. Like she literally found us, I think, on the internet, reached out to us and said, I need to start treating my hep C patients. Can I join? And so she joins, and so now she's treating hep C through our, through our program that way. In addition, let's say, to we've got uh, East Boston uh, um, uh, FQHC sort of joining us. Uh, we've got, I think, we had some people from Pennsylvania. We've got all, all our CHCs sort of across the board. As, uh, all our healthcare for our homeless provider also joins. And so really has been a wonderful uh, community that's been built over time. Our faculty really consists of myself and another uh, primary care provider who's an HIV and FC expert like myself. We've got a psychiatric APRN. We've got a PharmD. We've got my nurse. We've got our uh, case manager um, sort of that joins. And that's basically our, uh, and my medical assistant who actually sort of knows everything about prior authorizations and FC drugs and HIV drugs and so, so forth. So it's really a, a, a wonderful group of people that sit there from, you know, week to week and, uh, uh, and, and sort of share what we know with, with the people who are sort of joining. Um, and in many ways, it, not only does it improve access to specialty care and it's like that, that force multiplier, right? If people are going to come see one provider, there's only a limit of how many of one provider can see. But if we're training 20 providers out there to see their own patients, all of a sudden you've got access, much more access for our patients to be able to get the care that they need. Um, but it also, like, people, providers, love it. One, they get a little bit of break from their grind of everyday seeing patients. Two, there's professional growth that happens. There's professional camaraderie that sort of occurs with that. And it really is a, a, a wonderful thing for, uh, for their satisfaction. We created a website for all our echoes. Um, and so basically, this is our hep C HIV uh, website. 
you can actually access all the session recordings. God forbid anybody wants to sit through my session of like two hours every night to go listen to it. But if you want to, you can. You can sort of go in there and choose a session and sort of listen to all the case presentations instead of doing that. You can go to our didactics. All our didactics are listed um, uh, on there. You can hit on any of the didactics. We've got a whole curriculum for HIV, a whole one for Hep C. You can look at the slides. You can listen to the didactic if you want um, uh, as well. Uh, so I've talked to you most uh, about this uh, in terms of us sort of starting. It's a 90-minute uh, um, uh, thing. And so in terms of our stats, so far since January 2012, we've had 257 echo sessions for HIV Hep C. Um, we currently have 24 providers who are on. Uh, we've trained so far a total of 58. Uh, we've had people from six different states sort of join us. Uh, we've had 200-plus uh, HIV patients been presented, over 600 Hep C patients presented, um, uh, you know, 200 patients presented 444 times, and 600 Hep C patients presented over 900 times. Uh, so a lot of times, obviously, there's sort of uh, follow-up uh, presentations. In terms of our ECHO, BUP, uh, we started February 2013. Uh, that one uh, allowed us really to spread and encourage a lot of our providers, or not a lot, but at least one provider from most of our sites to actually get their XDA number and start prescribing buprenorphine. And that's been our biggest hurdle. I think, I don't know whether you, you have the same thing, but providers just don't want to get their X and start treating those patients, right? And so in many ways, we convince them, listen, join, get it, we'll sort of support you, join ECHO, you're not going to be out there on your own, you're not, you know, Kind of be flailing, not knowing what to do. We can sort of cry together or laugh together. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of times it's really sort of just holding hands and just sort of uh, uh, when it comes to sort of treating uh, uh, this population and just sort of go through it and make sure that you're not there out, uh, on your own doing this. Uh, so, so far we've had 72 sessions, 174 patients presented over 200, 200 times. Um, and then if you look at this, we've had 13 uh, states, people from 13 states, over 81 sites have joined us. Currently, we've got 23 sites who are joining. Uh, and when you look at the numbers, we've got 139 <coughs> providers who have gone through our ECHO, uh, uh, 93 behavioral health providers, uh, other care team members, over 100. Um, and it's really been very, very rewarding. And we've got people from who are just so hesitant about not wanting to do this, get their X number and then just refuse to prescribe to people who like are gung-ho and ready to go and really sort of understand what needs to be done for, for this patient population. And it's wonderful to have this, this, this mix of people in there because I think there's a lot of teaching that also happens within, within that uh, uh, sort of framework. So I'm just going to touch upon um, some of the things that we did for our QI, uh, sort of our quality improvement, I call it. And, and just sort of to, to, to show you how things work. So basically, when the HIV universal sort of screening came about, I went to our MedQI and said, listen, it's, it's something that we need to be doing. Let's adopt it as a policy. And so, and so we passed it through MedQI, and now it's part of clinical expectations and part of all the providers' performance appraisals. So everybody, and it's part of our, what we call our, 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 our planned care dashboard. So what happens with our planned care dashboard is when our medical assistants room our patients, they look up each patient's planned care dashboard, and they can see, oh, they're due for a mammogram, they're due for an HIV test, they're due for um, a pap smear, and, and, you know, and nutrition screen, right? So it's all there. And so then the MA will come in and say, all right, you're due for all these things, and sort of alerts the provider, and then they get sort of tested. Same thing with our hep C. Right, when the birth cohort screening came about, we said, all right, we've got to start screening our birth cohort. Pass it through QI. It's now part of clinical <laughs> expectations, performance appraisals for everybody. 
Um, simple things like we would test for antibody, comes back positive. We need to call up the patient, bring them back, and say, all right, we've got to confirm and then do the uh, RNA, right? How annoying is that? It's one more visit, one more blood draw. So we said, let's just reflex. Any hep C antibody that comes back as positive, just reflex it for an RNA. You get it done. You get it confirmed right away. And so, uh, and so we spoke to Quest. We used Quest, and here we go. Now we've got like over 95% confirmation. With the, simple. Very simple, right? We've just got to um, think about doing that. Uh, similarly, I put through MedQI, I said, listen, we've got HIV patients across the board. We've got all these HAB measures, the HIV AIDS you know, Bureau sort of measures that we need to sort of report to, to our Ryan White funders. Um, we've got all this stuff. These are all things that are expected. Let's pass it through MedQI and make it part of clinical expectations and performance appraisals. And that got passed, and now all these sort of different things that need to be done for HIV patients are part of clinical expectations. We're now in the midst of training everybody to start doing this. But uh, we're there. Now it's there. It's part of clinical expectations. And now we're going to sort of move forward with that. Uh, we still have a lot of our core team supporting the other team members in this. But I think, uh, you know, over the next few years, it's going to start being part of what they do, uh, every team doing. We've established a clinical dashboard for HIV, um, which is really amazing. But wasn't, initially wasn't that user-friendly. Uh, so basically, we put up all the HAB measures that we need, any other measures that we wanted done. And so you can pull them up by patient, you can pull up by provider and see all the patients that are, uh, that are HIV positive under that provider that comes out directly out of our electronic health records. And you can see, all right, when was, are they due for a visit? The, so it lights up red if they haven't been in for six months. Lights up red if the viral load is above above, you know, 200. Lice up red if they haven't had a CD4 count in six months. So you can sort of go down and do that. But what I realized is you have to go to patient by patient by patient. So in some ways it was great to go in one by one, but I, what I needed it to do is I needed to go in and look under my name and sort of say, how many of my patients need a flu shot? And then hit a button, get it, get those MR numbers, and then call them in. And so now I've just worked with BI, and now our clinical dashboard can do that. But now, but that's all there. So our team can sort of can use this. And, and we can sort of start to hone in. Like, let's say if we want to hone in on pap smears, right? And our pap smears are always terrible. It's like, how can we get, you know, our women in for pap smears? And so then, you know, we can come in and look at this and, and, and see who has had it and who hasn't. I don't know if you guys struggle with the RSR report. I, I never remember what the RSR stands for. But anyway, it's, it's our reporting sort of measures to have for our funders. And every year, we use eClinical Works, ECW, and it's somewhat been a nightmare with them uh, to sort of say, they keep telling us we can report it directly. We're probably the only ones that are not in CareWare. You guys have CareWare? Is that what you guys use? Yeah. We tried to go. We had LabTracker. I don't know if you remember LabTracker. We had LabTracker, which was horrendous. Uh, and then we tried to move to CareWare, and we pulled our hair out for like six months and said we can't do this. And then we decided we're going to do it through ECW. And it's getting there. Now we're reporting it out of ECW, which is great, but each year ECW changes how the mapping is going to happen to the different sort of measures. And so every year we have to sort of retrain everybody. So this still is falling in the hands of my core team, but for the most part, uh, it's, it's in ECW and we're able to report it out of there. So again, still tweaks to be done, but at least now we can report it directly out of our electronic records. Are you familiar with the clinical microsystems that you guys, yes? Everybody's not, so okay, I don't need to sort of spend too much time on that. But that's really been an amazing thing for us. So that's, the whole agency went to clinical microsystems 
and I think now they've sort of pulled back a little bit from having so many teams of clinical microsystems, but we've been able to maintain ours under sort of our, you know, we keep saying, it's Ryan White funding, we need to do this, and we're doing it through clinical microsystems. So we still meet, our whole team still meets as a clinical microsystems weekly, and we've done amazing projects through this. And so, you know, of course, we uh, sort of sit down, we come up with a purpose as a team, right? And everybody's equal just because I'm the medical director. I, my voice is not any higher than the medical assistants. This is the way that's supposed to work. We've got a coach um, sort of that does this. And we come up with a purpose. So we see our purpose in general here is to improve quality care for our patients, uh, ensure that, you know, uh, uh, world-class care is given to everybody and that professional fulfillment uh, is, 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 is sort of um, uh, given to all, uh, all of us who are sort of working this. Um, we do this, what we call this love and nuts. Uh, so basically we sit there and we, and we come up with all the things that we think drive the patient's nuts. Then we come up with everything that drives us nuts and everything that we love. And then once we do all that, we do a voting and deciding what is the most important thing that we want to attack. And then based on this sort of voting, we decide to hone in on the, the issues. And so over the years, we've like looked at annual exams, which completely fell apart and did not really work, but at least we knew that, that you know, we tried it, we PDSA'd it and it didn't work. Um, we sort of incorporated risk reduction screening for HIV positive as part of this. We integrated our PrEP program through this. And I'm going to sort of share with you as well, we, we did our whole SOGI. It was probably the most successful thing we've ever done. SOGI is sexual orientation and gender identity collection on all our patients uh, across the board, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in general, what you do is you sort of come up with a global aim. You uh, map the current process that you're looking at, as you can see there, mapping all together. We come up with a specific aim of what we want to look at specifically, and then come map up a, uh, a new process that we think we want to try out. And then we... PDSA it, right? So we plan, do, study, and act. And then we, and generally, we're, the, the organization allows us to just jump in, innovate on a small scale, see how it works, and then sort of turn it around and then sort of make it even bigger. And so just to give you some, um, some idea about our prep, uh, basically, recently, the DPH gave us some funding to be able to have a prep navigator. Um, and so the whole idea was, well, how are we going to sort of establish prep? Like people started saying, Prep should be only, you know, like it sort of doesn't make sense to me. Again, I'm primary care, but people are saying, well, prep needs to go to HIV providers. Like all HIV providers need to sort of uh, prescribe prep, and we're like, HIV providers are treating HIV. You got to sort of just go one step further. You got to catch the people who are not HIV yet or seeing primary care to get on prep, right? It just didn't make sense. But you know, providers here, oh my God, Truvada, it's an HIV drug. I don't want to touch it, right? So the idea is, how are we going to actually do this? So. We decided within the microsystems that I'd write up a PrEP policy, and again, through the PrEP policy, we passed it across the board. I love my chief medical officer. She basically agreed that every single provider across the agency needs to know how to do PrEP, including our quick care providers, because a lot of times we thought if somebody's coming in and he's PrEP right away, if our, you know, it's waking, waiting two weeks, three weeks to get into PrEP, it's just not, not, not good. We need to get them in right away, and so we've trained our quick care providers as well to at least start the process in order for, before they sort of get in. We, I set up templates and, 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 and order sets uh, in our e e EHRs for everybody. I did a grand rounds for everybody and basically said, this is how it is. I did mini sort of grand rounds for all the different providers and nurses and sort of did, we did a lot of that uh, going on. And then we really mapped out the process of our prep navigator. Like, first of all, how she's gonna get referrals? How's she gonna be in, in the system? What, what, like, and so, I mean, you don't think about this. We had a prep navigator, yay, but you know, how are people gonna refer to her? 
Where is she going to, like, even down to that, where she's going to sit? Where, which centers is she going to go to? And so we mapped all that out through our clinical microsystems, and, um, and, and, and it's now sort of working fairly well. When it comes to SOGI, luckily, uh, through our LGBT ECHO program and what we've done, so there was some money behind that, and senior leadership were like, we have to do this. Plus, sort of, HRSA has come down and said, this is a UDS measure, right? This is going to be a uniform data systems measure that we have to collect for all, for all of us. And NAC, National Association of Community Health Centers, came down and said, you've got to collect SOGI. So we had a lot of oomph behind us saying that we need to start to collect SOGI. Um, and so uh, we, we started to figure all this out within our clinical microsystems. Uh, it, it took us maybe eight months to figure out where we're going to put it in the EHR, right? So, so where are we going to put preferred names? Where are we going to put preferred pronouns? How are we going to sort of make it visible to everybody? Uh, where are we going to put this, uh, you know, the actual sort of questions? How are we going to ask the questions? Who's going to ask the questions? Are we going to do it at the front end? Are we going to do it at the back end? I mean, it just, it, we sort of mapped it all out. <laughs> so did a lot of work around that. And it, we ended up deciding that we're going to do it through medical assistance on the back end. And that's just basically because we don't have the way CHC is set up is they don't really ask a lot of the questions when they come in to register, uh, and so we couldn't really sort of do it at the front end, which is where a lot of are the Fenways of the world and the Whitman Walkers of the world you know, are saying, do it at the front end. At the same time, we did a lot of focus groups. Uh, I had a medical student do a lot of focus groups with a lot of our patients, and every single patient said, we want the provider to the back end to do this. We don't want to tell anybody else about this information. And I think there's there sometimes maybe disconnect and I'm not saying that that's the way it's always going to be. I think eventually, hopefully, it's just going to be like, all right, you know, what's your name? What's your sexual orientation? What's your gender identity? It should be sort of simple as that. We shouldn't sort of really make too much of that. But currently, I think it is, it is too much for some. And, and, you know, people go to Fenway or Whitman Walker, right? It's LGBT-focused and it's always been from the beginning. So this is not something that's going to be unusual for them, whereas we are coming from a general population standpoint across the board, and we realize that they prefer it on the back end. So the way we set it up is that the medical assistants will groom them. They will – it's on the planned care dashboard. Do they have it? Do they not have it? They don't have it. They give them this piece of paper. They leave it with them, and then the provider uh, uh, reviews this with them. And, um, and then we enter it into social history, and then we enter it if there's preferred names and pronouns, uh, uh, you know, in these different sort of ways, and we've got a transgender box and so on and so forth. And it's not perfect. Let me tell you, it's not perfect. Uh, the names don't always show up as well uh, as best as possible. We continue to sort of work with this, but really the AHRs need to sort of get, get with it and get sort of forward in terms of being able to accommodate the preferred names and pronouns. But just to show you, we kicked this off, so we, we PDSA'd it with me, then we did it with the nursing and behavioral health, then we spread it to a few more providers, then we went agency-wide. We went agency-wide September 1st. Six months later, we've collected SOGI data on over 36,000 people who've come in. So over 80% 80 of uh, adults who came in for a medical visit got SOGI um, uh, uh, information collected and over almost 57% of our pediatric so 13 to 17 year olds uh, got, got it screened as well. And what's great about this now we've got this data. Now we can sort of target for PrEP, we can target for, for trans health, we can target for a lot of things. And, um, you, know, uh, I, I, you know, I always thought, you know, we, we in the gay population are around 10%. Maybe not. <laughs> it seems like we're around four or five percent. Although I was quite sort of you know enthused that in the, among the adolescents it's around eight percent. So maybe they're a little bit sort of you know more open to sort of uh, admitting these things. But either way, so we now at least have data. We know who 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 sort of identifies as non-heterosexual, who identifies 
uh, um, uh, as trans, right? So trans, trans individuals, 1%. That was much huger than we thought. 1% among uh, adults and 1% among adolescents identify uh, 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 as, a, as a gender that they were not assigned at birth. And if you just simply ask, are you a trans man or trans woman, you will lose over half of them, if not even more than The majority of people, when they answer this, they answer that they are female and that the, uh, that the sex assigned at birth was female or vice versa. Right? So they don't necessarily see themselves as trans, they see themselves as the gender that they really feel, but their, their gender assigned at birth is different. Right? So you have to ask the two-part question. You cannot just simply just ask one, one question about it. You've got to have the two-part question uh, in that to pick this up. So for the last few minutes, um, I'm just going to share some of our data, since we always talk about data, data, data. Um, I always look at this data and I always feel like I want to do better, or we need to do better, but overall I'm sharing with you what we've got. So this is the universal one-time HIV screening uh, for all patients between 13 and 64 that had a medical visit at least once in the past 12 months. Uh, so for over the 18-year-olds, we've had 85% of people get this ordered, right? Uh, but 68%, just under 70%, actually got it screened and resulted, which means that we had, you know, around, what is it, it's like... Uh, 15% maybe, give or take, uh, who either declined it or just got it ordered but never sort of went to get the blood drawn. But not bad. So 70% resulted, 85% ordered in terms of uh, uh, adults. When it comes to adolescents, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, in general for providers to bring this up, especially when you start getting into the 13, 14, 15-year-olds. Um, but even with that, right, we have just under 60% having had it ordered by, by the provider. So the idea is that at least they've actually discussed this with the patients, which is what we really want. Um, but only 30% actually got, got it tested uh, among 13 to 17 in terms of our HIV treatment outcomes, I think like most of our Ryan White programs, I think we do relatively well. So this is, uh, we had 641 patients who had at least two visits in the past year. Um, almost all of them have been prescribed antiretrovirals and our viral load suppression rates are pretty good, around 92%. Uh, that's under 200, right? Viral load under 200. And it, what's great about the way we have this is that anybody who tests positive for HIV uh, internally or calling in, we're able to sort of link them into care within four days, sometimes even within a day or two. Um, and so we have a very fast sort of track to get people into our, to, to our program. Looking at hep C screening, right? Again, with the universal hep C screening. So this is uh, every, any adult who had a medical visit at least once in the past 12 months, and these are all adults, right? All general population. 36% of them, so almost 48,000 people have come in. Uh, uh, almost 17,500 had a hep C screen. When we, when we sort of tease it down into the baby boomer, right, because that's easiest for us to pull. So among our baby boomers, people were born between 1945 and 1965, uh, at least with one medical visit in the past 12 months, there were around 14,200 of them. Over 53%, around 53% got screened for hep C, uh, at least one. So again, I'd like that number a little bit better. But when we look at our stats in Connecticut, I think we are the biggest screeners and actually biggest treaters in Connecticut. And this is among primary care, right? Like, I, 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 I'm not saying among, it's among all. It's primary care that we're, we're screening and we're treating, which is, which is great. So when we look at how many we actually have as positives, uh, so we have uh, 
people who are hep C positive who are RNA positive, around 1,840 who have been identified, and people who have only gotten hep C RNA uh, uh, tested instead of like the antibody screen. Sometimes it's just we already know that they're hep C positive before we move to the electronic health record, so only an RNA is in the system versus an antibody in RNA. So that's around 1,081. So we've identified 2,921 patients who are hep C positive at our health center uh, who are infected. And uh, so far, we've treated 815, which is actually one of the sort of largest treaters in this. And this is primary care again. I mean, again, we're trying to sort of pick up, and these are people who would never get to the GI or, or couldn't get to the GI, right? So it's not saying that we have to replace GI or ID who are doing this. That's not about replacement. It's about all of us doing the work together to get to treating everybody. Um, as you can see there, the measly 80 before 2012 was like myself and two other providers doing interferon treatment uh, for the most part. And then 2012, that's when HEP, our ECHO started, right? And so you see that since ECHO, that the, you know, what is it, like 90% of our uh, people got treated after ECHO started across the board. We've got everybody sort of treating them with HEP C. And, and then, of course, as each year goes on, the direct acting antivirals becomes, you know, easier and easier to use. Uh, uh, you know, we've had almost a third uh, prescribed in the last year alone. 260 patients got treated in the last year alone. Um, and, and not so bad. I'd love this more. I'd love every single patient. But approaching 28% of our people who are identified as Hep C have having been treated, I think that's really good. I'm currently looking at all the SVR rates here. But even just looking at the SVR rates from the interferon days, we were really running around 60% in the interferon era. And I can only sort of imagine that hopefully our directing anti antiviral sort of use is going to be really out there with everybody else. And lastly... Um, this is my last slide. This is about our buprenorphine and our echo. So when I sort of I published a paper on the first 266 patients um, that we started at our health center, um, and that was when we had four providers prescribing only, one psychiatrist and three providers, including myself. Um, since then, especially since, since we established echo, uh, we've gone up quite a bit. So now we've had at least uh, around 1,785 patients who've been started with buprenorphine at some point since 2007. Uh, and we currently have, in the last six months, 650 patients who are actively being prescribed. And, uh, and I've, I actually just got this really exciting data, which I will share with you orally. But um, we were looking at uh, the 1,500 patients that we have at least six months of of, re of retention uh, on them, like of observation on them, and the uh, and we all the way up to almost eight years of, of, of follow up. So this is really sort of fresh data uh, that we're looking at. Uh, our six month retention of 1,500 patients is around 73 percent. Our one year is around uh, I want to say 63 percent, which is really amazing and much higher than most of the stuff that's being reported out there. Uh, and then it's been fairly consistent year after year two years, three years, four years, five years, all the way up to eight years, that we hover around 40 to 45% retention, uh, which, again, is amazing to see that it's sort of so consistent over time. And I think a lot of times, that's, I honestly feel it's because it's primary care, we're there, we're fairly accessible, we're fairly open, uh, uh, and sort of, they sort of keep, they're able to sort of fall out of care and then come back into care, and we're always there uh, for them to pick up, uh, uh, to pick them back up again. But anyway, so that, that is all I've got. Um, uh, I would love if there's some time for any questions. Uh, hopefully this was helpful or interesting, at least. Thank you. So we have five minutes, especially, um, for questions. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, we have to rematch one thirty if the people do have to stay after for additional questions. So, questions? Yes. Hey. I am quite jealous, but admire your enthusiasm, um, <laughs> and it's especially coming from the primary care perspective, uh, because I think without a champion like you, this wouldn't have been able to happen. And I think we, coming from the consultant infectious disease standpoint, we've been trying to, and correct me if I'm wrong, my colleagues, engage our primary care physicians in this, because you're absolutely right in saying by the time they come to us, it's too late, one way or another. They've already got the diagnosis of hep C, so they already got infected, or they already got HIV because they weren't on prep. Um, and it sounds like a lot of the work you did around kind of making people do the right thing was held to kind of performance standards. And I'm just wondering if you had any other um, recommendations for us coming in as kind of the consultants and how to engage primary care better, because we don't want to be kind of the top down, you need to do this. We certainly want to um, make them understand that there's a real importance to, to screening and treating and kind of taking the lead amongst the medical home and using us for you know, consulting services and the expertise that, that we have. Yeah, so I mean, I think, I, I, I thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, so I think you need to identify your clinical champions and you can find them anywhere, right? It could be an administrator, it could be a, a primary care doc, it could be a nurse, it could be something. Identify within yourselves as well, because I think you also need clinical champions. So for instance, I can sort of envision for you, some, let's say you are enthusiastic about doing this and you've got a few primary care health centers within your community. You can sort of reach out to, to them in many different sort of ways, right? You can sort of reach out to them and see who might be interested in this and say, you know, I Project Echo, like it's a, it's a great way to do this. If you can sort of say, find your clinical champions within those, those practices, see if you can convince people to be able to sort of do this. And I, I think in many ways we did link performance appraisals to some of this stuff. But there's a lot that people are doing well uh, above and beyond, and I know probably a lot of pay, uh, providers don't even care about the performance appraisal. So, like, what are you going to do? You know, okay, so I have a 60% versus 70% clinic, right? I, I think in some ways it doesn't motivate people that much. I think it's really the idea of I don't want to sort of I, I I'm interested, but I just don't feel like I'm out there on my own. I don't have time to do a lot of reading, right? To be able to sort of feel like I give good care. But that, that's where echoes sort of come in, honestly. So basically, we tell people, you, don't, you need to just have an interest in this, but you don't need to do any extra reading. You don't need to do anything else. So I have, I have providers who literally, I think, have been on for like four years, and I feel they're not really any, any more knowledgeable than they were. At the, well, I take that back. They're probably more knowledgeable, but I think if they, if, if they went on their own to do it, they probably won't. But the fact that they come to echo and they've got handful of patients, they've treated them properly through us, but they didn't really become experts in their own right. They don't have to be, right? The idea is that Echo, you could become an expert if you want to, but you don't have to be. Whereas I've got other providers who, who are now, you know, they, they are HIV specialists on their own, right? Like, the, you know, they sort of took the exam with the AHIVS, yeah, and sort of, you know, uh, and they're treating their HIV, they're leading their center in terms of the HIV practice. So you're going to have different sort of uh, people with different interests. Uh, I don't, I, I think it's just if you're interested in this and you really want to sort of uh, train and you've got the time or find a grant to buy your time or, or, or whatever it is, uh, you know, do this. Reach out to your primary care folks and be the, be the sort of the leader and the consultant. And, and I don't get a sense from you that you're going to come and say, this is what you must do. Just educate and just make sure that you're open, open to sort of whatever 
issues that they're going to bring to the forefront. Primary care providers are inundated with productivity and needing to see patients and doing a thousand things, right? But, and so ECHO, something like this, is just simply will keep reminding them what to do, gives them the, the idea that all they can do is just come in and ask the questions and the consultation, you know, with that that way. And I think that's how you, you just start sort of doing that collaborations with, with, with those primary care providers and those agencies. I don't know whether that's helpful or not, but um, yes. Issue. A couple things. One is I think we hang on to um, it's, it, this is working towards getting rid of the bottleneck of patients. Right. And, um, we hang on to patients and that kind of disempowers the, the primary care providers and um, it, it sort of goes both ways. But one of the things that the Ryan White funding, things like that have is all the other services, um, including nursing, behavioral health. Um, and, and if you've got a provider that just has a couple patients, in a community, um, a lot of what these patients' needs are are not the what the drug is right. or anything right. like that. It's all these other support services. And how do you start matching those needs with this kind of model? Yeah. So that, that's sort of why we, like my approach has always been sort of embedded in the resources that are available to you in these primary care health centers, right? So it's, in some ways, I, I love the fact that within my core program, I've got my case manager and I've got my, uh, my, uh, uh, my outreach worker. But for the most part, and I think, you know, I've said this all along from the beginning, the way we approach HIV medicine is the way we need to approach every single medical patient. I mean, that model that sort of we sort of got forced to do with HIV is a model that needs to have been done all along, right, of the care coordination and the case management and, and, and all that stuff. And so I think we're finally getting it in primary care. Um, and so now we're sort of moving towards team-based care. Uh, we're moving towards, you know, looking at care coordination. Um, and so whatever resources they've got, try to sort of work with what they've got, because I think that's how it's going to be sustainable for now, right? Um, I think there's different ways that can sort of be done. So I have patients that I share with the ID clinic in, in, in uh, the hospital that sort of I work with, and there's others that just come to me alone. So there's a great, uh, you know, they've got my phone number, so, you know, the ID doc can call me at any time that the person, can, you know, a patient of mine ends up in the hospital or for seeing them for primary care. So there's an open communication that way. If you can't establish echo, I mean, maybe you can think about things like e-consultation, right? So, so the idea of, uh, so we're starting to do that a little bit within our echoes too, so within our websites, we're now trying to set up and say, hey, if you've got a quick question in between sessions, um, why don't you send out, send out an e-consult to me and I could, I'll sort of send it back to you. It's sort of happening anyway, but we're trying to formalize it. I mean, people can instant message me. They can send me a telephone encounter within our EHR. Those are for the quick questions that they need right away when they're seeing the patient. But sort of establishing those types of communication, I think, is, is a way to be able to start uh, sort of doing that. And then, and then depending on where the funds are, right? If you've got the funds for the case management, um, Again, so depending upon how many patients these patients uh, these providers have, but we sort of tend to try to set up the case managers in the community sort of to go in and meet with the providers. It, if they've got a lot, we do a formal sort of meeting. If they've got a little, they can sort of send an email and say, hey, I saw your patient here. And so, I mean, if you've got case managers in the community that are not there, then again, connecting those, those dots to help give them the support that they need. Um, but I can't tell you that I have the answers. 
because you've got to really look at everybody's resources and how things have set up traditionally and how you can start to sort of bridge those gaps, right, uh, uh, within that. I definitely think that it, within rural, rural medicine, I think the e-consultation and ECHO programs seem to be a way that could sort of really bridge a lot of a lot of gaps, and you can sort of set it up where you know a patient can necessarily come see you once every six months, but in between they can get their care rurally with the primary care doc with your guidance, right? So I mean, I think there's different ways that can sort of can be done to fit whatever practice that happens to make things easier for the patients. I think in many ways, and then receive the best care that they can. Thanks for the question. It was really really interesting and fascinating. Congratulations to the numbers you get. Thank you. Do you have any sense how much of your population you're reaching? You mentioned the opioid epidemic, and I feel like working up here for the past year, I feel like there's a lot of folks out there who are just not connected to care and who would deserve a lot of care because they have infectious and addiction problems. Yeah. So do you have a sense of that? I know it's hard to see that. <laughs> you know, I have a sense that there's still so much more need out there for people to get engaged in care. So I'll just give you, I, we're in the midst of looking at, at the 1,500 patients uh, cohort. Um, I can tell you about the 266 that I've already looked at and published on. And of the 266 patients that we sort of saw for buprenorphine, 80% of them had come in to care for buprenorphine. All right. So that alone sort of tells you that only 20% were already established with us in care and requested buprenorphine, whereas 80% of them actually heard on the street that we're doing buprenorphine and came in to get buprenorphine, and now they're engaged in care. So I think, one, we need to start to establish these programs, the medication-assisted treatment programs. The word will get out very quickly. You don't need to advertise, trust me. <laughs> the word will get out that you're doing this. But what, what we found is that bottleneck, right? So as soon as the word gets out, and all of a sudden we're saturated and access starts to become a problem. So you need to sort of ensure that there's going to be one that, you know, if you're here for a year or two and then you leave, you've got the X number, who's going to pick up that X number after you? Um, uh, and, then, and then sort of look at how many people have that because you're going to be limited to 30 at the first, you know, the first year, and then you can go up to 100. Most of my providers at the health center sort of stick to 30 and don't go beyond that. And I don't blame them. I think most people can handle within a busy primary care setting around 10 to 30, depending on how experienced they are. The really more experienced go up to probably around 60. Um, uh, and then the ones who are just basically doing this got an interest. I don't think we've got maybe two or three people that are almost close to 70 or 80 on there. But the idea is that if every single one of you has an X number, then it's not a burden on only just you in terms of access, right? I mean, I, to me, and I may be putting you know, my foot in my mouth, but I feel like we've got this treatment, right? And why are we picking and choosing? Right? We've got this treatment that saves lives. So why am I, can you go ahead and say, all right, you know, I'm going to treat the diabetic, but I'm not going to treat the hypertensive. Or I'm going to treat the diabetic, but I'm, not, I'm only going to use metformin, I'm not going to use the insulin. Like, why do we do that? We've got these life-saving medications, right? We should all step up to the plate, especially as everybody's dying, and sort of, and, and, and meet the need. Meet the need of our patients. Learn. That's what we need to do. And I think... I don't blame people because we got very little training, and I think we continue to get very little training in, 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 in sort of drug treatment and substance abuse treatment. But I think we can now start to look at things like ECHO and, 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 and integrated care to be able to sort of share the love, or share the, the crying, whatever it is that we need to do in order to be able to save our, our, our patients and our communities. But it's hard. I, I can't, it's hard. When I first started doing buprenorphine, 
Literally, I think I started doing it. And then I, Christmas time, I went away for Christmas time and I came back and I literally had a rebellion on my hands. Like I came back and the whole team with the senior leadership sat me down and said, what are you doing and why are you giving these people, you know, these treatments and they're still positive for cocaine and you're still giving them buprenorphine and you're, you're, this is a mess. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I just realized I, I, I failed in that I wasn't really continuing the education among them. I wasn't really sitting down and really hearing them in terms of what their frustrations are. Um, and, and, and now it's like I look back and I go, my God, that's just ancient history. But it took many, many years. So you've got to really sort of push for that sort of to get there um, with a lot of handholding, a lot of education. Um, but I think more than ever, we need to do this, especially when it comes to the opioid crisis. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. Did you employ any groups? For, 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 for yes, uh, Hep C we never did. You know, the whole idea was should we do this with interferon? You know, we never got to Ren to be able to do the group stuff uh, for the Hep C. And now at this point with direct acting antivirals, I don't think there's any great necessity. For the buprenorphine groups, when I first started, what happened was our counselor at uh, through the health care for the homeless came up to me and said, I want to start doing groups. So I said, okay, if you're going to do groups, I'm going to start doing that. And so we just started within that community doing that. And now every site that has a buprenorphine certified uh, uh, provider, we have groups going on. And that's actually been very, very helpful. But our groups, again, is minimal, right? It's sort of like, we, it's a once a week uh, uh, groups only. If they end up needing intensive outpatient, we have to sort of send them out into the community. So connect with people in the community for these things. Um, sometimes our patients just don't want to go to IOP. They can't. They've got childcare issues. They just can't get it together. And so we try to accommodate any they might come in once a day, once a week for groups, and then they meet once a week on a one-on-one -on -one with the individual counselor, and they see me, and we try to sort of support them as best we can uh, that way. I mean, our whole point is to make sure that people are off the streets, right? So the whole, I mean, we definitely come from a harm reduction model. Like, I don't want to put so much pressure on somebody that all of a sudden, you know, they can't take care of their kids or their grandkids, or they can't go to their job or so on so forth. So we try to work with them as best as possible. Any other questions? Thank you so much for staying a little bit longer. Yes, <laughs> of course. So the thing we talk about a lot about here is, is other infectious complications of injection drug use. You know, endocarditis, osmolytic, and how do we retain the care and get guidance through this? No, because we we basically are. I mean, we see the abscesses, but not as much. A lot of times, they just end up going to the emergency room anyway. Um, and definitely, we've seen people with endocarditis and and, and, and you know, other sort of complications from that. The, we're trying to set up communications between, and this is something that you guys can do if you can identify who is treating in the community, uh, who has X licenses. Um, and then coming up with ways, whether it's the emergency room or after they've been hospitalized, to try to link them to care there. So you could look at starting them on buprenorphine here and then connect them with the buprenorphine in the community as long as you've got the communication. Um, you can look at if they've really been here for a while and have been off and they'd rather do Vivitrol, like naltrexone, give them an injection here first before they leave and get them out there, right? So to start them on the injection that way. I think there's different ways that we can sort of collaborate. We've got to collaborate. And we're trying to sort of reach out to some of our emergency rooms and I think at, at, in New Haven they've done a great job of doing that. Uh, I think Gail D'Onofrio is the Yale psych who sort of has linked almost all 
the emergency rooms in New Haven with at least a place where they can sort of place uh, patients who've shown up with overdoses uh, to be able to link to buprenorphine or methadone in their community. So we're trying to sort of collaborate that way with some of our uh, hospitals. But it's hard. It's hard. Everything is siloed. And so you've got to really keep pushing uh, for that. <laughs> yes. And, and please, I've got my email here. You guys can email me. If anybody wants my card, I can give you my card. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I don't know.